Hello, I'm Rufus Bird, and welcome to Collecting, a podcast about why we collect art of all types, how it was collected in the past, and what it means to collect today. I hope you enjoy it. I'm here today with James Sturton, a former director of Sotheby's and author of many books, including a superb biography of Kenneth Clark, which I enjoyed very much indeed, and specifically with regard to our subject today on collecting great collectors of our time, art collecting since 1945, published by Scala in 2007. Thank you very much indeed, James, for taking time to talk to us today. Could you tell us about how you came into the art world? I registered art at Cambridge and I needed a job. And the, I had, for complicated reasons, to pay for my self at, at university. So I borrowed money, so I had to pay it back. And the only people who gave me a job immediately were Sotheby's. And I stayed there for the next 32 years, and it was very enjoyable. Being at Sotheby's is a wonderful place to be, to witness transactions and people collecting and just buying. But before we get into a bit more detail about that, and this is a very general question, we may want to use the whole of this discussion to answer it, but why do you think people collect art? Somebody once asked Kenneth Clark that question. He said, you might as well ask why they fall in love. The answers are as various. Uh, There's no one particular reason why people collect. There's many theories about collecting. I don't particularly subscribe to any of them. People collect sometimes because the subject matter is a great interest and they collect because they have space to collect. They collect because they've got money and want to spend it on something. They collect because they're artistic, aesthetic, intellectual, historical, you know, any number of things. When we're, most people when they're young, they don't any longer, I don't think, collect stamps. And that was a sort of mixture of completing the set, historical, you learned about geography. And most people sort of moved on from that to, to, to other things. And some people actually conquers. Oh, the minimalist form of collecting, of course, is train spotting. Mm. That's completely abstract, but it is a form of collecting. So I've never really been sure how to answer that question. I know what, what, what great collecting looks like, but it, that's a different question. Thank you. I want to turn to your book on collecting before we, and then perhaps yes. talk about yourself as a collector, because yes. I think for me, it was incredibly interesting to look at it. And I can't say I've read every single page of it, but I found the introduction fascinating. And the book in itself is not just a tour d'horizon of great collectors since the since the war, since the Second World War, but is to me, it seems a very serious in-depth study of collectors and collecting in their particular way of approaching art in all its forms. But what really interested me was in your introduction, you concluded with this, what seemed to me almost perfect statement about collecting. And you say, whether it is aesthetic or intellectual, great collecting is first and last about discrimination. Correct. But what criteria do you assess a great collection? Well, that's what great collectors do. And I think they do one of three things. I think that a certain kind of great collectors is the most obvious kind, pick winners. Peggy and Guggenheim, Charles Sarchi, very obvious examples of that genre. They pick winners and we applaud them for that. Then there are those collectors who define their subject, and they're quite rare, but George Kostakis, mm. I think, in Russian avant-garde, 
he said, I have to define who are the captains and who are the generals and who are the colonels. He actually had to write the script from, 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 from scratch. More common, I think, are collectors who reinvent their subject. And there's masses of those, not masses, but I think they're the most common type of important discriminating collector, Dennis Mann, mm -hmm. reviving Bolognese art and Guercino. I think the way George Ord looked at the encounters between the riverine civilization, the ancient world, and Africa, and so forth, was an example of that, of a natural, sort of what had always been seen as a linear story. I think that was an amazingly brilliant and interesting way in which a collector could show us the world differently. George, of course, was very flawed, and, you know, he, today his name is usually associated with pieces without provenance, but putting that aside for a minute. So... Does that help? Certainly does, yeah. I, I mean, what struck me about what you, what you say there is this public dimension. This, and again, you, you referred to that in, the, in your introduction in, in, in the book, the, mm. the private versus the public, and this idea that a collector might want to go into a particular area in order to shine light onto it in a particular way, rather, as you say, George Ortiz and his approach to, it's essentially sort of archaeological approach to understanding more about the world so that we as witnesses to that can understand it through his eyes and well, Dennis Mann particularly yes. who you describe as one of the sort of missionaries a missionary type collector yes. I think is a very interesting approach yes. do you think between the public and the collecting well I think the public dimension of collecting it has become very very common in the last 20-30 years and collectors feel a, an obligation they didn't feel before to show, discuss, lend. I mean, ever since you go back to the Manchester Exhibition in the 1850s, there has been this sense that you know, art belongs to everybody and that collectors have a duty to show their art. And, but I don't think collectors notice we're collecting a public dimension, that, unless they're going to give it to the public, such as Lord Fitzwilliam, uh, the Fitzwilliam Museum, or ultimately John Soane, was usually because they didn't have children or they didn't like their children. But the idea that people collect in order to show art is generally quite a modern thing, and it, it, you see it very much coming up in the early, very early part of this, in the 90s and early part of this century, with these billionaires, Eli Bro, Dacus Yoannou, Archie, of course, and, and others. You know, Pinot in, 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 in Paris. Yeah. And, and Arno, who have these huge exhibition collections, which they rotate and they're generally kept in the Freeport. And that's sort of, they're buying it to show it. Mm. It's also about scale. I mean, ever since the Abtech Expressionists, art has not been about domesticity. It wasn't Dada, in a sense. Art, art left, left the drawing room. Mm. You get a bit of a sense of this. You go back to the 1660s, 1670s, you know, when, you know, the Counter-Reformation, these great big machines that were being created and these vast canvases and there was a repetitive and boring, it completely lost all connection with domesticity. So there are parallels historically, but you, and they were public art as well, but you get this move towards gigantism, which is greatly encouraged by something like Charles Sarch's Boundary Road Gallery, there was never a space like it in London, mm. and it was inspirational to the YBAs. I mean, when they saw that, 
they knew they wanted to reproduce that. So when they did freeze at the Port of London Authority building, oh, yes. they, would, they were basically trying to reproduce Boundary yes. Road. Yes. And it gave them the courage to sort of do things that were bigger, bolder, more in your face, more shock jock than they would have done otherwise. Because otherwise they were knocking on the door of, you know, Nicholas Logsdale, you know, who has exquisite things, small things, you know, small gallery. In those days it was quite a small gallery. And, you know, it didn't really work and Leslie Waddington wasn't interested. And again, Leslie was very much somebody selling to, to, selling to private, you know, collectors. He, for the domestic space, presumably. Yeah, for domestic domesticity. Doffey was much more museum focused, so he was much more about things that really, you know, he was selling much more to, I think, to people like, you know, to... To, to Tate. Yeah, 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 the Tate, he was very much, and Edinburgh, and, you know, he was selling German art to American museums and American art to German museums. He was more museum-orientated. Mm. And so much of this art is museum art, it's show art, I'd, I'd say. So the motivation, I mean, so... Just to dig in a little bit further onto, onto that, what is the motivation then if it isn't domestic and if it is public? Where does that motivation come from? Just, I mean, obviously putting oneself in the mind of Pino is impossible or any of these great collectors. You know, is there a, is there a degree of ego within this? Is it about reflection? Or is it about bringing together groups of objects that they was, are interested in themselves? Yeah, it is. I always used to think that Gilbelkin used to address posterity through art. And I think most of these billionaires uh, address their uh -huh. image through yes. art. Yes. You know, it's, it's, in some sense, it's like in building a medieval cathedral. You know, it's sort of, it's a, it's a sort of expiation. I see. Yes, I hadn't thought of that. So there's a, there is this religious, sort of, spiritual aspect. Yeah, we, you, you mentioned right at the beginning that, you know, collectors... We, we dutifully don't go to church on Sunday, but we do go take to take take modern, or we yes. go and look at some... Absolutely, and you could go look at art. The Turbine Hall is a very cathedral with, with a similar reverence. <laughs> That's know. very interesting because mm. this this is some something that I find is, in a way, a strand that I've noticed more and more is this this sort of spiritual element to the collection of art. But let, let's leave that to one side, and and certainly I think that that maybe comes within the private dimension. And certainly also, as we just mentioned, with, with Tate Modern in, in the public space as well. But I wanted to move on because one of the things I found fascinating about your book is the way you divided this, the book on collecting, divided up by national schools. And I thought that was a very interesting approach. And you give good reasons for why you, you do that, because one of the key reasons, not least from you know reasons of geography and things like the export controls, which obviously were then lifted later on, but, but also because art is a sociable activity. And this is, I think, one of the things you mention about collectors generally is that they tend to know one another within their own areas and therefore they have this kind of interchange with one another. And does that then mean that there is this kind of essentially almost a national dimension to people collecting in a certain way. Thinking of Peter Ludwig, for instance. Yes, don't. <laughs> He's a bit of an exception to every rule and all the stuff. <laughs> yeah. Otto Schaefer always said he, he wanted to be very private and discreet, you know, as you couldn't be. You yeah. know, to be a collector, you needed to circulate, you needed to see what was around, you needed to... to, to... I think that at the time I wrote that book, or the period I was writing about, art was emerging from national schools and you still had this sort of great cultural tectonic plate shift from a Francophile world to an American world. 
and you could see that in this post-war, post-war world, to Germany, where the past was a difficult place, they looked straight to America, the new bold art coming out of America, Franz Klein, Rosenquist, all the rest, whereas Switzerland, small and neutral, remained very, very Francophile and didn't really change. England, it's usual sort of delightful, isolated way, <laughs> was sort of doing something rather interesting and peculiar. But by the end of the story, it's pretty much broken down. I mean, I wrote a, a subsequent book called The British's Art Collectors, and my conclusion at the end of that was that I didn't think there's any such thing as, a, as national collecting because in the, all the great collectors in, 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 in Britain, they tended by that stage, but by the, when I wrote that book, just about 2010, to be in London, but none of them were British as such. They're all called Khalili Hotong. So I thought, well, maybe it's sort of meaningless, the whole idea, you know, they happen to be based in London and they're London-based collectors. So the whole point about London is it's this entrepôt where this exchange of ideas, and it's this neutral position between Europe and America and the rest of the world, and it is positioned geographically, linguistically, makes it a comfortable place for people to come. So I don't really know any longer but again, you have to go back to the fundamental question is, are artists national any longer? Yes, you true. can't really ask the question about collectors right. without addressing the artist question. And that's very complicated. But, and I, you know, when I was at Southern Business, all I ever did was talk to collectors every day. And in those days, I think the collectors I met were all people, very international people who lived in one, two, even three places. And they foraged wherever they found art, you know, you go where the goods are. Which leads me on to my next question, which is, again, another motivation, if it isn't, as you say, and I've, I completely agree that this idea of the internationalism of a collector today more than ever is, is, is probably one of the main qualities for, for, for allowing such a kind of broad range of objects to be collected by such a wide range of, of people. Because it certainly seems to me that interests are very, very much broader today than they than they perhaps were. Certainly, looking at the types of collecting in in, in your books, but one of the things that strikes me as absolutely critical to collecting is the availability of material. I mean, it seems completely obvious, but clearly, and I think you mentioned somebody who said, "Well, if I didn't collect Picasso, then I'd collect you know Chinese pots or something." Uh, I think Albert Ling said it to me. It was a great Chinese collector. She said, "Collecting depends upon what comes along." And that's so true. And there's a that wonderful story of Paul Mellon chiding his father, Andrew, why on earth do you go to that charlatan, Lord Devine, <laughs> to which he looked bleakly and said, son, he has the goods. Yes. You go where the goods are. Mm-hmm. And it's been very striking in the book I've just finished on the story of the London art trade. What made London the world centre for the decades which it held that position at the art market was because it had the goods, it brought in the goods, it, it, it attracted the goods. Some of them it had already, but it was essentially, it was by persuading Americans to sell French pictures in London back to Americans, yeah. Yeah. combined yeah. with the native old master collections. So the goods is everything. Absolutely. And coming on to motivation, rather than just, which I suppose in a way is the other side, you might, you know, you can only buy what's available. And, and 
you have a sort of social network around that, perhaps, depending on where you, you live. Today, obviously, people live in all different parts of the world, much more than they used to. So that is, opens up many, many more different areas. But I wanted to go back to that motivation piece, why people collect. And what I found fascinating was the, the fact that, certainly in one of your, in your book of all collecting since 1945, a large proportion are of Jewish descent. Mm. And this very interesting idea that, that you propose that, again, going back to the spiritual, as Jewishness becomes more secularized, some of perhaps that sort of early scholarship is transferred into this, you know, into the process. The inquiry. Inquiring, exactly, of knowledge and yes. transferring that. And then this historical element of the assimilation uh, within society. An improvement. Yes, I, I mean, I don't really know enough about Ju Jewish history and society to develop this, but it did seem there was something in it. The mere fact that, you know, vast proportion of the world's greatest collectors had been Jewish and are Jewish. And it's a tricky subject because uh, a lot of my Jewish collector friends don't like being identified, you know, as such. But there have been some seminars recently on Jewish collecting. I don't know. I think more work needs to be done on this, mm. and probably not by me. I just thought it was a very interesting approach and possible explanation for a motivation within yes. the people. Uh, before we come on to talk to you, I liked Otto Schaefer's that, and again, this perhaps goes back to how Kenneth Clark referred to the idea that to explain why people collect is like you know the reasons for falling in love, which is which is in a I think you say that you collect with the heart, the mind, and the eye, and that Otto Schaefer said that the eye is not it. And I so often hear, as we always do, and you know, somebody has a good eye, and Robert Kine, you know, was referred to, you know, as having a very good eye and all the rest of it. But I always feel rather unsatisfied by that because well, there's the ear, there's the ear as well. And, but but and that, that's two ways. Uh, uh, the Italian sculptor famously said, "The English." only collect with their ear. And he meant that detrimentally, because he said they only collect if, if there's a story attached to it. They only use an art when there's a story attached to it. Interesting, which I think is something that's growing more and more. This idea of narrative has has really kind of grown. Or explanation, yes, yes, yes. Well, it, it's, you know, when people look at, so if you go look, look at the Sarah Nucris exhibition at the Tate, it, you know, unless you follow what she's, trying to do and say, you don't really understand what on earth these works are. Yeah. So you do need to have some... Yes, the whole premise of conceptual art is yes. really based on some sort of narrative. Yes, yeah. yes. Uh, narrative exploration. But could we turn to, to your own motivations and, and perhaps starting with Jean Thor's interesting idea, which actually in a way, I mean, I'm not a collector, I find it very hard to collect for financial reasons, but I have been buying a few things and I thought my first purchase was an aesthetic or emotional response and that was his mm, said, yes, yeah, that's how yeah. you would start and then followed by an inordering an intellectual I think that's very true and a lot of collectors I know Johnny Bessie said the same yes, you do start with a sort of cathetic experience with something which speaks to you and you buy that and you notice it and then you find some other things, you learn about it there some people, Alistair McAlpine said, I buy, I, I buy, I collect to live. But Alistair had no discipline and you know, was really a shopaholic. But in the case of Jean, who was a fascinating collector, it led him into a very serious pursuit. And he 
normally would sell the early thing. When he started buying drawings, the first thing he bought was a row of Chiapolos, and so Fred Adams said to him, not many problems there, are there, Gene? That's <laughs> so upset, Gene. He got rid of the Chiapolos and started collecting seriously uh, mm -hmm. things that were more challenging. Yes, I, I, I think, when, I suppose in, in the drawings field, it's, it's, it's a, a, you, it, there's a sense of, of the stamp collector completing the set, and of course you have to get sort of private pleasure pouring over your albums. And drawings collectors are a world unto themselves. They're highly knowledgeable and intelligent, and they all share amongst each other their, their, their toys. Whether they quite sort of change the world in the same way that someone like Dennis Mann or George Ortiz did, I don't. I wouldn't know. I can't think of drawings collectors. Did draw, I mean, I suppose what George Gilner did at the Getty, but I can't think of any drawings collections that sort of really changed art history or changed the way people thought about Perhaps they, I'm sure they exist, but I don't know them. Yes. Catcher Bellinger would be one, but as a dealer could have turned, but, Yes. But maybe not perhaps transformative in the way that the museum yeah. is creating with, you know, groups of drawings in some way. Well, you're always looking at, you know, when, you know, when you looked at Jock Witness, you, you know, you wouldn't have thought it was possible to reinvent Impressionist painting. It's so obvious. It's so pretty. It's so, yet Jock Whitney, when you looked at Jock Whitney's collection, you looked at the whole Impressionist world in a different way. It was so original and it was so powerful and it was so different. You know, even Impressionist paintings could be made to seem fresh. I think the personality of a collector can shine through if they've got a you know, very strong personality. And Joyce collectors, I, I think, are among the most intelligent, dedicated, they're essentially rather like the German ceramic collectors. You know, they, they, they all meet at their seminars, and they meet at their fairs, and they're highly knowledgeable, and it's wonderful they still exist. They're the most intelligent, knowledgeable collectors around, I think. They keep up traditional collecting today in a world where connoisseurship is downgraded. But, but James, tell us about your how, how you started. Well, my collection is extremely small beer. I started, I was, I've always been a book collector, and it began when I was really very young, at the age of nine, ten, and I used to win handwriting competitions, so I began to collect books on calligraphy and writing, and that led to an interest in letter forms and lettering and printing and arts and craft and William Morris and, you know, the private press movement. So it was a sort of natural progression. And then I had a press myself, both at school and, and after university, I had a press in a warehouse in Hackney. And I think my earliest book collecting was about models for emulation. I was collecting great typographers, Bruce Rogers, great American typographer from this country, Francis Menel, and before Eric Gill was disgraced, you know, Eric Gill. Yeah. And a lot of this was about, you know, examples and great examples of printing and illustration. So it began very much, I mean, it, it's quite a traditional thing for British book collectors to start with private presses. I was slightly broader than that because I had a very specific aim. I wasn't just collecting pretty books. I was actually interested in how I could use these. But uh, you were a schoolboy this time. Well, uh, and I... Yes, but my, my, I mean, I, most of my printing took place when I was a, a graduate, when I was actually it's living... It's quite a neat area for somebody... Yes, 
I was working at, at, at Sotheby's and I spent my weekends in Hackney printing these books. And I was, you know, that as I got a little bit wealthier and had a bit more space, I could branch out. And collecting evolves. I mean, collecting very rarely stays in, in, a, in, a, in a niche. And then I began to collect favourite authors. I began to get more ambitious books, more ambitious books and printing. You know, well, you know, forget. I was able to get a Scott Chaucer, for instance. Mm. I was able to get some of the great illustrated books. But then I was really focused on certain authors. And what I wanted was the copy. I wanted the copy that Graham Greene gave his mistress, Catherine Wollstone, the first book he gave her with all its erotic drawings. I wanted the you know, the copies that, you know, Graham even Wall gave Cyril Connolly with, with rude inscriptions. I I wanted copies that, that there was the book told you something more than just the yes. book. It was a special copy and it had an interesting inscription. And I collected about a dozen favoured writers, mostly from the sort of the nineteen twenties period. And it depended upon what came along. And you know, I didn't some I found myself collecting the first book of authors, not because I intended to do it, just because they kept coming up, usually with an inscription to their first girlfriend. And that was rather interesting. So I had sort of the first book you know, that, that even Wall gave his, at that time, boyfriend, Alistair Graham, the first book Graham Greene gave his girlfriend, the first book you know, of several of these authors get, gave, gave to their girlfriend, boyfriend at the time. And, and that was a complete mistake or a sort of accident, really. Anyway, I never really thought much about it. I just bought when I found things that interested me. And then I had the opportunity to have an exhibition at the, in the Reynolds Gallery of the Royal Academy under the aegis of the Roxburgh Club, which I belonged to. And I then be I made a catalogue, which I called Wales and Sprats, because I think a great book collection is not about trophies. It's about Wales and Sprats. And the Sprats are often as interesting as the Wales. And I think a, I wouldn't trust a book collection that was just full of trophies. I think you need the pamphlets, you need the small beer, small change. And it's great fun, but what it told me, and I felt I sort of, I'll just read you a tell it passage if I can find it. Never before having considered the collection as a whole, I'm struck by how interconnected my books are. Friendship is the recurring theme, other people's and my own. I always remember the Parisian book collector Hubert Eilbrom telling me, I like my authors to know each other, it can be love or hate, and I like my books to tell a story through the unexpected history of the book itself. The inscriptions do indeed tell many stories, aspiration, admiration, love, rivalry, confession, hoax, gratitude and revenge. I have had enormous fun putting these Wells and Sprats together. How fabulous. That, that sums it all up. That sounds like Balzac. You know, <laughs> the, 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 the comedy humaine is all that. Yes, it, well, I, I'm, I, you know, I'm a, a deep, deep, deep Francophile and yes. lived in Paris. But there we are. That's an, that probably tells you anything you need to know about my book collection. I looked enviously at some of the stuff in Charlie Watts's sale, but I thought the prices would be ridiculous, and I was right. Mm. Well, that's um, way, I have to wait for a collector to to die. And of what I call my sort of collecting books, about seventy percent have came from about four four great sales. And I give myself especially Chefu Grant. She <laughs> when someone like you know. Stanley Seeger's sale, or Anthony Hobson, or Annette Campbell White sale, and you know these collectors had wonderful material where I could really gorge. 
Charlie Watts unfortunately brought in the non-collectors, and so really, you know. Yes, of course, it's sort of trophy hunting yeah. for the uh, day. Dick yeah. Big Warrington was another one who was a who, who I bought a lot of stuff at Big Big Sale. He had great material. Mm-hmm. So you know, you wait for the you wait for the the collector sales. It's a great intersection, not just in terms of the methodology of collecting, but thinking of books and particularly the illustrated books. I was with a collector recently who. I said, well, why do you collect these books? He said, well, I can't afford a Picasso. I thought, well, we can't all afford a Picasso, but in a way, it was a more interesting way to collect a Picasso, or not a Picasso in this case, but art by wonderful, talented artists in book form, because in a sense, you're getting two for the price. Well, I think your your friend is is absolutely right in principle. I think you should always collect the best of what you, you can afford, and if you can't afford paintings, by drawings, you want for drawings by prints or by etchings or by books. And probably I became a book collector because it was probably what I could afford and I was naturally bookish. And, you know, because we well, had a printing press as well. Well, exactly. Yeah. I, I, I sort of turned the whole corner, you know, from, from calligraphy to printing to editing, publishing, writing. I, and what American publisher calls a publisher who writes is like a cow in a milk bar. <laughs> I've done the whole lot. But the principle is you've got to collect an area that you can afford to collect and buy the best. You know, it's the worst of all possible worlds is to be buying, you know, bad impressionist drawings. Yes. You know, trying to buy sort yes. of trophies. Yes. And trophy collecting, I think, is the bane of all collecting, because it sort of, you know... It, Very interesting. Yes. Uh, trying to run the 100 metres against Usain Bolt. <laughs> then, you know, I always think, you know, whatever you collect, you should collect it. To, to, you know. I mean, the, the, what we've not talked about, of course, which it just changed everything, is the internet. And it's one of the reasons why national collecting is, is so obsolete now, because, you know, and it effectively has sort of destroyed the West End of London. And it's, you know, although, you know, the old days there used to be this exalted pyramid of sort of, you know, runners, bright mm-hmm. runners, knockers, you know, small dealers, all leading up to Sullivan's and Christie's or to, you know, mallets or partridges, that whole pyramid disappeared and it's now just, you know, the the, the great international dealers and, and then there's millions of people on the internet being busy. Mm. So that's a, that's a sort of exchange and march of the world where, you know, Salem in Malmo has a portal probably as good as Sotheby's in yeah. some ways, it won't have the goods, but the portal will be as... And so they get as much attention now as, as probably a, a Sotheby's sale might, or they could do. So it's so changed. To increase the transparency, in a sense, that's the... Yes. The transparency, in a, in a, you know, not in a sort of underhand way, but in terms of the ability to, under, to, to find prices, to find what something is sold for in Malmo. Yes. You know, including five th- years ago. And something. I think it's too early to fully understand the effect of this. Yeah. I, but I, I, and I've, you know, been out of it for too long to really. And I'm, I'm not an internet buyer. I mean, except in 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 in, in books. But it, it it is the revolution really in collecting. And I don't think you know we somebody who's sort of closer to it needs to sort of think about this much more. But I can only see the effect it had on the London art market. It was revolutionary. It meant that you didn't need a gallery any longer. So suddenly, you know, all these businesses were essentially internet-based, sending high-res pictures in a second in the old days were these incredibly expensive 10 by 8 transparencies. Oh, yes, indeed. You know, and 
the, the you know Agnews and dealers like that were completely held beneath the waterline because you know you didn't need a palazzo any longer. You didn't need a the Duveen model had gone essentially. Yeah, sort of grand spaces, you know, where you yes, people in that whole. Yes, mm. except you do for contemporary. Mm. It went to contemporary because contemporary need the space, and because it's not actually a secondary market, it's a primary market. So it all that went to contemporary, but mm. for the non-contemporary, it's a, it's the marketplace totally transformed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. but it's yeah. still. I mean, because I'm still connected, you know, in in you know, in, in the art market. It's still a very, very sociable and one-to-one business in that, you know, actually to make a transaction, actually to want to collect in a serious way, I think you still have to hand that very oh, yeah. kind of... You know, yes, I mean, you know, even if your, your eyes caught by something, you know, your high-res picture, you still want to go and see it and touch it and feel it and hear it. And <laughs> talk to someone about it, you know. All yes. these things can continue, I think, to be absolutely crucial in, you know, in, in, in yes. creating a collection in some way. Yes. But it's true, the internet is both a sort of curse and a blessing, really, for the art market. Well, a lot of dealers feel that it's a terrible curse because it means that everyone knows the price of everything and the value of nothing. And Ivor Bracco said to me, you know, basically in this world in which everybody knows the price of it, they don't want to give a dealer a profit. They want to buy it on the internet cheap. They, they, the idea of a, a dealer, they surely think that they're going to pay for the dealer's holiday in Mustique or something. And, and of course it forces a lot of collectors to auction where they may pay more for it even. But Ivor Bracker felt that the internet had a very adverse effect for that reason. Yeah, no, I do. I think it was a misunderstanding. And it's the service that a dealer... I mean, the dealer, like Ivor Bracker, you know, has such a huge amount of knowledge and, you know, directly connected to so many people. Well, I was that... Remember what Harry Carrot said, that the, um, the greatest bargains are those you pay the most for. Yes, it was... A, and, and J.P. Morgan said the only, the only, the only true bargain is quality. Yeah. But actually seeking that out requires expertise, knowledge well, and, and in the old days spirit. someone like Ivor was very attractive to a collector because he didn't have a gallery and because he could advise across the art market. And a lot of collectors or fashion type collectors, Bertie Hitchcocks was a, was typical, used to like to take his advice from across across the across the, the market. Yeah. You know, and very good advice he gave. From your point of view, what advice would you give to anyone wanting to start collecting today? I think, I said, collect what you can afford and collect the best. Learn, 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 learn. Read, read, read. Look, look, look. You'll only learn by looking. You'll only learn by buying and making mistakes. You'll surely make mistakes. Go to Portobello. Go wherever it is. Look, look, look. Ask questions, read, read, read. Yeah, yeah. Above all, talk to dealers, talk to collectors. Dealers love talking. You know, it doesn't matter if you make a few mistakes along the way, that you'll learn a lot from that, but you may not if you get into good advice. But have fun above all. Absolutely. That's basic. And finally, this is a sort of fantasy question around our, what single object anywhere in the world, in any collection, would you want in your collection? And why? <laughs> and why would you want it? Well, this came up in another form when Country Life very kindly asked me to do my favourite painting. And I don't have a favourite painting, 
but I'd lived all my life with a postcard of this Ben Nicholson called St. Ives Rooftops. And it's a little talismanic quality to me, so I'd love to have that, please. That is a beautiful band. Where is it? Is it in in, in St. Ives? Is it in St. Ives? No, I mean, funny it it, it was in the the Redlow collection in Leeds, Redloff, I think it was called. It was a, 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 I think it was a, Leeds Sheffield lawyer who had a wonderful collection because I think it then went through various other collections. I don't know where it is now, but I'm very happy to live with that. You know, it's, a, it's a domestic picture, it's a picture of great charm and it gives me endless pleasure. James, thank you very much indeed. It's been a real pleasure. Thank lovely. you so much for your time. Nice to, to see you. Thank I you. wish I could hear your version of this. <laughs> Maybe in 25 years' time, James. That's it for now. Thank you for listening to Collecting. I hope you enjoyed it. Thank you to my brother Felix for help with editing and for writing the music. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time.